0: like if that's step one, you don't even decide whether you're going to be a pasture grazer or a market gardener until like decision four or five, right. You're sort of sure. getting a hold of the water, figuring out how the, the water, water dictates, dictates what you can do. And then also the flow patterns of just even the flow of where you know, whether you're going to be driving a full size combine or whether you're going to be a, a guy with a wheelbarrow going through small paddocks, um, you know that flow. Once you find out how the water moves, and you start to heal that water cycle, it tells you how to move across the land in ways that aren't destructive, and in ways that are on contour to help spread water even farther. I don't know if I'm making sense now, or if I got off on on that, but um,
1: you absolutely just, uh, you absolutely are making sense. Like you you're you're reading the landscape, and you're receiving feedback you're not trying to force fit what it is you want on the land the land's gonna otherwise if if you if you try to force fit it the land's gonna fight you every step of the way this is the farm hop life podcast a traveling homestead family i'm Matt derosier on the farm hop life podcast we learn what it takes to grow your own food from everyday people could be a college student grows tomatoes and salad greens on their apartment patio a former VP of marketing for Del Taco, now raising cattle in Montana, or someone who hasn't had a homestead in over 10 years. This show is aimed at teaching you what it takes to make homesteading work for you, that we all make mistakes, we all have bad days, but we can reach out and help one another thrive and giving you the confidence needed to go feed yourself. You're from the United States, but you moved to Canada to start farming, or? Can you walk us through that a little bit?
0: Yeah. Uh, born and spent most of my er, all my early life in Iowa, uh, right in central Iowa, and um, I was trying to think there till I was essentially 35, um, and then I've just been up here in southwest Ontario for the last eight years now. We came in 2015, um, but I'd been traveling into Canada uh since the late 90s, and that's I met my wife uh, who's Canadian, she was down in Ames, Iowa, with us with me uh, for 12 years, and we were. We were doing some things, subsistence, farming on a friend's homestead and and um, grew some row crops down there for a few years just to feel things out and get some experience, uh, interacted with a lot of farmers down there. But then when it finally came to sort of where we we're going to land um, shortly after my daughter was born, uh, we ended up here for sort of an assortment of reasons. Um, and and it's, it's beautiful and it's much like uh, – it's it's got a lot of characteristics of Iowa, um, both in the people and the landscape and and those sorts of things. So I think it all translates. You know, quite nice to. Um, you know, I will say I watch on Twitter some of the the guys that are farther west and the the drought issues that they deal with. I mean, I feel I feel it's a good thing I came here. I didn't really know a lot about farming other than uh, being <laughs> immersed about it in Iowa. So I came to where it was uh, it's pretty damn easy. <laughs> there's, sure, there's, sure. It's lots of rain, and I mean, of course, we have our challenges, but it's uh, in a pretty beautiful, forgiving place with lots of water, and we're not far from uh, Lake Erie, which you know gives us access to that recreationally and all that stuff. So, sure, happy to be here. Did you pick
1: that spot then, knowing that you had good rainfall, or did you just luck into it?
0: I mean, certainly, my eye was trained on those sorts of things as we were looking for places. I mean we, we very nearly settled in a couple places in Iowa and, and different projects kind of fell through or <clears throat> for one reason or another. And then, uh, my wife being Canadian, you know, when it's sort of, when it was like, okay, this is where we're going to land forever. said, okay, we better broaden our horizons. And she even had some family links like in Southern Manitoba and we explored that a little bit, but I mean, really that's like getting to be harsh, harsh land. And I mean, I love the prairies up there for various reasons and, uh, been around there hunting and stuff but um you know go to usda zone two no thanks we'll pick uh five <laughs> five and six down here um and then this area was just sort of a crap shoot now so then my wife she does have family uh that was sort of headquartered in toronto so we wanted to be towards that direction but you know might as well be on the u.s side of it so it ends up we're about two hours from detroit um you know, if ever oh, driving, that's not that far. No, and if you're driving sort of like Michigan to New York, we've had friends coming from Iowa to New York, and it's just easy to sort of take the take the North Shore of Erie and, and stop in on us. It's a, uh, it's a. Uh, we feel like we're right in the loop. You know, you see those maps if they would ever redraw the countries, sort of, we'd be right in there in the Midwest, and it feels like it, for many respects.
1: So you guys moved to Canada. So like you you had farming experience in in iowa and then you ended up moving to canada to start your farm and like just hit the ground running just farming or you move there for other work and then farming like on the side and then the farming came in to like as like the full-time gig or what's the what's the deal
0: yeah so yeah we just we basically we did hit the ground running and we sort of knew that's where we were going uh my wife and i both had at that point sort of semi-academic uh pasts. And my wife was sort of at the point, uh, as a recent PhD graduate, you know, we could be chasing postdocs around or looking for tenure track positions, that sort of thing. And quickly said, no, we need to land somewhere more permanent. And so then the idea started to evolve of, you know, the farm of what that could be. And then really, I mean, I don't think we saw any of it coming exactly how it would. uh, But we had our daughter, and sort of a year later, it sort of just became apparent to us that, you know, somehow we needed to split those co-parenting uh, things and so yeah, I had some gig work and things that followed me from Iowa that lasted for a while, and then uh, my wife here sort of ended up inventing a position for herself that really matured well um, for a local nonprofit. That's pretty non-profit. sweet when that for works local, out. <laughs> yeah, for a local nonprofit, you know, it's not the the greatest pay, but it's definitely been like it's allowed her most of the day she works from home, and uh, and sort of between the between the two of us, somebody's always working and somebody's kind of you know, been handling the kid and, and <laughs> other bits of life. Um, and we just, you know, we live frugally and make that work. And uh, we've been fortunate in many ways too that sort of make our life simple with respect to some family help to get here. And uh, we, now we actually, um, have invited my in-laws on and they have a part-time home that we built on our, on the farm and just finished right as the pandemic was coming on in April, 2020. Wow. And, uh, um, yeah. So we've carved ourselves a nice niche for sure. And it's just been this balance of her working and then, you know, and kids take, kid taking tons of time, even though just, uh, just one kid, you know, this can still be a handful, maybe even harder than having five or six that are helping to take, take care of him, you know, <laughs> uh, but very much integrated life, you know, so like doing chores slow because we were doing it with the, the kid along those sorts of things. Right. And, um, Oh
1: yeah. I'm very familiar
0: yes and uh, you know it's a lesson a patient's been very fortunate sort of for what you know the ability to, so you know yeah long story we've always we've sort of been here and it's never been like the grind to where the farm is going to sort of make or break us you know and it's kind of like one season to make it or lose the mortgage sort of thing with my wife's job and stuff we've been been able to make some mistakes and not sweat it too much but learn a lot and uh you know and i think sort of gear up now for we've got a lot of knowledge for kind of our next step where we'll have more capacity. Cause we know we don't have an infant tied to us and that sort of thing. Sure. Uh, and, and we're, we're, we're now trying to, you know, work on ways to bring her off the farm. So we do eventually want to shift it all to the farm. And, uh, you know, we've had various philosophies, try to at least make the farm. I've got lots of conservation practices and we can talk about sort of pond building and swales and earthworks and tried to always make the farm enterprises kind of pay for the those sorts of projects which are yeah. investments in the future and then you know pay insurance in Canada's I mean it's not great anywhere but everything seems to be expensive here so try to make the farm like carry its tax load and its insurance load and uh, pay for a whole whack of trees and some excavator time and then that's kind of been where our dependence has ended so far. True. Um, sure. Sort of yeah i'm sure the
1: tax the taxes up there are a whole different ball game I'm, I'm i'm sure
0: again we really lucked out i mean this place spoke to us in many ways and we sort of coveted it for a while and it ended up i stayed at a friend's that was very near here and then even the couple like in the first postings of the house they had a u.s and a canadian flag like flying from the flagpole there was these weird symbols all along and uh and then so it's beautiful for many ways. and like, I was really hunting for specific topographies and stuff. And this place has lots of, uh, lots of topography to play with for um, the things I like. And then lo and behold, we actually have this fraction of, uh, of land because of our for our small forested areas, the area of natural and scientific interest. Um, it pretty much zaps our taxes down to nothing um, for the ag land. So it's been, I have friends I that are, that. I have friends very close to here who've been like fortunate to get big chunks of family ag land and just get brutalized by taxes. But then I've sort of wedged into where they're not great, but they're not too bad. I mean, I still pay like a residential rate on my two acre home footprint and that's plenty. Sure. Uh, but um, yeah, super, super fortunate. You know, you need every like ace up your sleep that you get. So <laughs> save yourself a couple thousand yeah. a year in taxes. I'll take it.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, that's hard-earned money right there. So, yeah, stepping back a little bit, back to your time in Iowa. How -hmm. did you get interested in like farming or homesteading or you know having a garden? Like, did you spend a lot of time with grandma or something?
0: Yeah, for sure. I was just thinking about that specifically, and you know, this uh, through Twitter and these conversations, I've been thinking more about the word homesteading lately. Um, whereas I maybe hadn't for the last little while. I mean, it's always been a bit in my blood. My grandpa, he was, uh, I grew up as a farm boy, but then ended up sort of after the war in a residential lot. But he was, he sort of like grabbed himself a three corner, three lots on a corner. So he had this beautiful spread with a big garden and always had like, these huge tomato plants and stuff. So it was always something that that was with me for a long time. It didn't last long into my teens, as you know, grandparents tend to age, and and uh, you know I wish I'd seen a lot more of that garden and learned a lot more of that garden. Especially, lo- I lost my grandma early, so I like now I look back. All the ca- she was canning green beans and stuff, and I'm like, oh man, I wish I I love the green beans, but I didn't learn like how to can them and all her stuff. And uh, so she went to Alzheimer's, so there's like it was sort of, it was it's out there anyhow. So that was like and then in in my blood, and then I was born in the city, but my folks by my dad by uh, and stepmother then by kindergarten we'd they had gotten us out onto like a three acre property in a small town in sort of north central Iowa central Iowa and uh, so it was a great lifestyle there like and then we had access to um, Army Corps land next to that so it felt like we had you know access to the whole world our little three acres we sure. could, could dive right into uh, around Sailorville Lake I for, forget where your headed head bordered uh, headquartered out there i guess you bounce around but if you've been through central iowa anyhow we were uh butted right up to sailorville lake and so then like i always knew from that you know my aspirations were always an acreage and and then uh it's always a conservationist a hunter and that sort of i became sort of uh, just trying to go through the arc of how i got here um always interested in conservation and that sort of got me into science and i like uh long after high school I sort of, I was a delayed student into university but um, I got sort of plugged into some I did some ecology work that's where I'm, I you know I did lots of work for on ducks and geese in various places in northern Canada that's where I met my wife and sort of got uh, so all of a sudden like my I turned into like a professional interest in conservation I should say and then through that like academics that's where I got totally turned into agriculture and was just like okay all conservation needs to be ag like, holy shit, I'm in Iowa surrounded by corn and beans. It's, a you know, the black desert fought against that a lot, sort of in my young twenties, just like hating the system. But then just kind of all that kind of just turns you back into, I guess I just got to go farm for myself and try to, you know, learn some of these things, but also just secure my own food because I don't trust the food system anymore. And I don't know, maybe I went through that arc too fast, but I think a lot of people sort of get there. So I don't want to belabor the point. Right. But all of a sudden you're like, yeah, shit. I got to grow my own food. Yeah. And, uh, and try to make, you know, make something stick. And, you know, I just, I, I keep going now. Suddenly it's like, you know, maybe there's not even going to be money when my daughter grows up. So orchards, (laughs) orchards are better than money. Where does it, where does it, how do you sort of invest and build sort of legacy and wealth that's going to be resilient to all the changes that seem to be coming, you know, that we could not even, they weren't even on the radar sort of like trying to make a young life in the late the late 90s like even the last three years have been so crazy the ratchet down like just makes you think more and more homesteading resilience and
1: it shifted a lot of priorities for a lot of people that's for sure not sure if it's enough but
0: (laughs) well and i was thinking about it a long time and i feel very fortunate that we sort of moved when we did because like Prices were way different here. Um, we have a 50 acre farm and we bought it with a fairly new house. It, um, the house had only been built in uh, 2008. We moved in 2015. Um, I don't know if I just said that wrong previously. Uh, so fairly new house on 50 acres. And then now like just a little, a little bitty lot with a much older house on it, basically just sold for the same price is what we bought this place for, so. Um, wow what would be but you know like in canada definitely it's like really really come up um but i'm sure everywhere there's big exodus from the cities here people are like after covid get me out of the cities Um, oh yeah so yeah definitely glad to be glad to be landed before that although ontario was not great during the pandemic so i it makes you you never know you know you go for this big huge strategy and then suddenly you're like shh surrounded by communists maybe i picked the wrong spot but maybe, <laughs> maybe that's relaxing now it's all these all these things you never thought about or you need to think about when you're sort of anchoring down
1: are you just in that regard are you kind of second guessing the location or you're like ah, i'm kind of uh, dug in now i'd hate to i mean
0: wait yes and no like we're here this is like my daughter's life which where she knows that you know we've got lots of like connection to the land and you know actually got some really close friends around here so no we're here um like pandemic times especially like ontario they just it was the lockdowns were weird here and people were weird in stores for a long time and like if you weren't compliant with all these things like you might just get you know sort of like half the town was karen's that would literally start fighting with you and there were just places you didn't go and whatever but also very cool like and very polarized people around. Like, anyhow, it just it, it was a it was a very there was a very tense place. And then also like you know couldn't go to restaurants and stuff. So it was very real that the things that you were suddenly cut off from for a long for a long time here. So then you're like shit, you know. And Iowa was they were pretty pretty open. You're like I moved away from Iowa to to come here, but right. you now it's relaxed. And you know, but you just never know what's coming next. um So this is where we are. This is where we're planting trees. I think, you know, if it ever came that our sort of financial portfolio was ready to invest in more land, you know, it'd be a 10, it would be a, it still a juggle. Um, whether I was to try to buy like a hundred acres here or even a hundred acres somewhere else in Iowa, or what. you know, uh, actually I probably wouldn't go back to Iowa, but even here, like being here, like buying land in Michigan. So I could always jump ship and, you know, at the very least be planting it out to trees and it's only a few hours away, stewarding it increasing the value. Like we've built ponds and planted lots of trees here. And, you know, we've added lots of value to the land. So, um, and for that matter, like I say, Michigan, cause I'm towards the Midwest. Like I can be in upstate sure. New York in two hours too. And so the same thing we thought, you know, could, could buy land there. Be- My wife was in the, in the U S for she's a Canadian citizen, but she was in the U S for a dozen years and we really thought we would stay there. So she's got, um, citizenship and she got citizenship in the u.s my daughter is too so we can very fluidly go back and forth
1: i mean if you're not that far from detroit just buy some property in detroit i think it's still cheap i'm not really sure I <laughs> exactly check. and get yourself a boat and so if anything gets bad just go across lake erie and
0: yeah it's right there and even like also that's even detroit's there but we can go right across uh right across into ohio would be straight across lake erie i've definitely thought about you know you think about resilience plans, like okay, a boat, you know, a nice war eagle, or duck some boat, scuba,
1: deer, I, scuba gear, yeah, submarine.
0: Exactly. You got to stack functions. So if you get a nice war eagle duck boat that you can cruise across lake areas to get away, it's like double. That double is two. very.
1: uh, That is very Midwest, and I'm not sure anybody knows what you're talking <laughs> about. But
0: no, probably not.
1: Being from Minnesota, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, those things get into so many road accidents. It's <laughs> it, it's amazing that they're even street legal. But whatever. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you were talking about uh, about planting trees being kind of like a like a form of wealth. I mean, you talk about like appreciating assets, like that's that's one for sure.
0: Yeah, I think it's very overlooked. I was really starting to get my eyes open to that. Well, again, just a very concrete example, like of the value that's there, like. I looked at buying 70 acres in Iowa and, uh, we almost bought it other than it was, it was way too narrow and just like very heavy conventional ag on both sides. Um, and it was probably get overspray. You, yeah, I don't think, I'm not sure you could ever grow a tree there, but had a beautiful prairie remnant, um, in it, but there was a like a landlocked piece in the middle of that, that we were trying to get the guy to sell or just like, we go to sort of like see if we could get it all in one piece because actually the walnuts in that guy's like he basically planted a walnut orchard 40 years ago. And for, and just like, was like, Oh, my son was never interested. So we never went back there. And, uh, you could have paid, you could have paid for the whole place in walnut logs. Um, and I've known some people that have done very well. uh, Or I met like throughout my journey of just meeting, you know, cool people in my young adulthood in Iowa, like, people that had bought properties that way and so then you think then as you start to think about legacy those folks were mostly cashing in on sort of ex- existing walnuts but you know sure. you could do that you could if you planted a, if you had in in a lot of places in the u.s if you plant the right forest trees in your 20s you know it's probably going to be and take time to prune them every few years it's going to be one of the best portfolios you can have you know if you had a Twenty acres of walnuts that you planted sixty years ago, gonna be doing all right.
1: Yeah, that's true. Do pigs eat walnuts or is it acorns? I can't remember which one.
0: Oh, they would rather eat acorns, but they will okay. eat walnuts. Um, and I was just picking that one. The black walnut's a beautiful wood, so the veneer it's like really high quality. Veneer, yeah, but. and yep, then yep. Um, we're in a really good place for it. I honestly, now that we're talking about it, I probably haven't planted enough walnuts. I know there's uh, there's authorities around here that say we sort of have some of the best and fastest like straightest walnut growth potential around here. So hmm. I don't everywhere there's little things like that to, to
1: I'm just leaving money.
0: <laughs> exactly. Well so much marginal land, right? Is uh so much places that we really beat up for crops could so much better just be put into these long legacy restoration projects making wood. Right. Yeah.
1: So getting into how I found you. So Somebody, we we were talking about it very briefly before we started. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody made a tweet about, I'm sure, like agriculture or something like that. And uh, you had take, did you take it personally? Like almost like a personal attack?
0: It was George Monobot, I'm pretty sure. And it was, I mean, I, I mean, that guy's just a lightning rod anyhow. So every occasionally, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to be snarky to somebody on Twitter, it might as well be somebody that, you know somebody like that, not just a normal sure. person out doing their thing. And, but he had just some, some picture of, you know, some obliterated place being stomped to death by cattle and saying like, this is when a chef asks for, for a rotational graze meat, this is, or pasture raised, this is really what you're getting. And, you know, I've just come to know that that's a pasture raise is a tool that can be very effective for like ecological restoration and production at the same time. And so uh, at that time I happened to be, going down and I just had a beautiful vista where I would see my animals every day. And so I just snapped a picture in response to that.
1: I, uh, I found it. I actually All right, found great. it. Yeah. So right here. So George, whatever, like you said, more than 800 million Amazon trees felled in six years to meet beef demand. And who cares what he said? I was more interested in what you said. You just go, Nope. This is what grass fed means here. You are looking out over a field that was row crops for 150 years. Now I've seeded it to Prairie restored six wetlands and is grazed by sheep and cattle and is full of wildlife. How many acres have you personally recovered George? That was so awesome. Uh, The second I saw that, I'm like, I got to talk to this guy like right now.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, a bit snarky, like I said, only to George.
1: Hey, that's fine. Uh, He earned it.
0: Not everybody has to be doing that. I mean, I think everybody has a part to play in that, and I guess that's just, you know, as I became a critic of agriculture, and especially in Iowa, that just means, like, corn and beans and then, you know, a big portion of what the corn is being used for is to feed cows, and so it's like this, the whole system of, you know, putting protein and oils on the plates of people is kind of the name of the game for the landscape, and so Um, you know, when you try to go counter to that system, you start thinking of ways that you can have the same outputs, you know, protein and oils and uh, in a sort of more regenerative way. And uh, and I know, you know, not everybody's doing what I'm doing. And I don't certainly have it optimized to where it's the best system. And I know, but I do know grazers that are doing, you know, a lot better than uh, sort of what George was portraying there. I mean,
1: uh, that was a pretty hard flex though. I mean, you're just, you just, it was pretty impressive. So
0: it's the, the the problem with the the anti-beef movement is that uh, I do think like in the overall arch of however, so I'll step back. We need to, we do, I agree with lots of these folks in that we need to like redefine the way that we kind of, that we produce our food. And, um, but when, the stance like that goes to sort of like trying to exclude animals. I think it's like um, very much a proponent that sort of any new agriculture um, or tweaks or whatever you want to say, although you could, you know, we need to be coming up with, you need, need to totally revision where our calories are coming from, like on a continental basis. Um, but that way it has to have our animal allies and has to be integrated crops and livestock. And so um, sort of, it's worse than kind of the baby out with the bathwater to, to sort of, you know, say, Hey, and you know, I take it. I don't, I don't get into those conversations a lot. And, uh, and I know George is sort of a blowhard. So I usually let him go. I actually used to, to sort of respect some of his writing, but you know, everything, the fractions have gone so big and like people on both sides have just gone crazy. Um, But especially on that side, like now it's, you know, totally like the no farms movements and all these crazy things. Um, when I think like, not only do we, is it, of course we need farms to raise our food, but also like, we have a lot of healing work to do. And I think the farms are the way to do the healing. And so, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how George plans to put it back together, but I think, I think we need to actively work with our animal allies, the grazers to, to regenerate the place. What
1: uh, steps have you taken to do the healing of your land? Like you were talking about swales and um, like civil pastures earlier.
0: Yeah. um, You know, I think in the biggest general, in one of the general senses, like even from kind of planetary scale and all the way down to anybody's field is like the first thing you need to do is like work to, to restore and heal the water cycles. um, You know, and, with respect is kind of the conventional ag that I see and critique. And then also that I, that was the legacy of the land before I was here. Um, you know, it's just land that's sort of been worked pretty hard has like a infrastructure of subsurface drainage, which, um, sort of even like, as a practitioner here on the land is the bane of my existence. Like I've projects being subverted and I know I'm losing water and still many places. Um, but you know, trying to recapture some of those cycles. So um, essentially the tiles all kind of running to get the water off your property as fast as possible. So um, I'm doing things that are almost, you know, perpendicular to that where anywhere they want the water running downhill, I'm trying to get it running sideways. And so um, I mentioned before, I kind of, I've sought a property with topography topography to play with in that sense. and uh so i just have like uh, trying to think of the best way to describe this out just make it taking a moment to just describe the land um say my farm is 50 acres and it's got um 15 acres of sort of cleared arable land in a top portion that's accessible by a road and then there's kind of a c shape of 20 acres of woodland that also has quite a big relief difference and goes downhill 120 150 feet into a bottom 15 acre cleared field that is um flatter and it's like the alluvial plain of a mid-sized river that's a little bit off that's on my neighbor's property so but it like would have been the historical 500 year floodplain or whatever so it's flat the bottom ground and so my top ground is sort of has has ridge lines anyhow where we can do things like build swales um i know there's a design technique key line design whereby you're sort of have a formula for intercepting the water before it gets to have erosive and destructive power and kind of turning it from running downhill to running mostly across the hill and so um because my home was already built on this property before i got here and it's kind of in the middle of thing where things could be i actually was able to take all the water from the home and send it into a swale that sort of used to just be going down through an old what was the cornfield and sort of the same old goalie that was always in the cornfield was now getting worse because the people had lived here for seven years and had a 50 feet of tile line but then just sort of kicked it out into what they had seeded down into horse pasture but the same old pattern as always right there's old legacy ag tile underneath of it as well so i've just taken that and turned it and i run it now around um since then i built a pond in my backyard and i built a terrace below that so that i can overflow the pond in the wet season and it has two choices like um if the pond is full it can just go into the forested valley where the water normally would have gone before or i can send it into a terrace and it sort of wraps around the farm like 750 yards both of those this this sort of swale and terrace just as ways to move water along and then um by way of that's sort of the key line design then that kind of those features set your set the whole pattern so if we go back to saying how do you what do you do when you're at the, the when you get a place and i say you need to heal the water cycles it's sort of like subverting those erosive forces and then typically in identifying those and finding out how to deal with those better you can it sort of lays out the whole pattern and template for the whole farm so you do that first and then like if that's step one you don't even decide whether you're going to be a pasture grazer or a market gardener until like decision four or five right you're sort of getting a hold of the water figuring out how the The water water dictates dictates what you can do and then also the flow patterns of just even flow of way you know whether you're going to be driving a full-size combine or whether you're going to be a, a guy with a wheelbarrow going through small paddocks um you know that flow once you find out how the water moves and you start to heal that water cycle it tells you how to move across the land in ways that aren't destructive and in ways that are on contour to help spread water even farther i don't know if i'm making sense now or if i got off on on that but um, you
1: absolutely uh, you absolutely are making sense. Like you you're, you're reading the landscape and you're receiving feedback. You're not trying to force fit what it is you want on the land. The land's gonna, otherwise if, if you, if you try to force fit it, the land's going to fight you every step of the way.
0: Yeah. I can like, so in a hilly land, like the, there's kind of a great example. And I've seen this several times and then you, I've um, on a hilly place, oftentimes they find the roadways to be straight up and down the hills and those sort of will exacerbate erosion um yes and then you know rows being made in those patterns are going to do the same in the field but then like a lot of times but people would say like okay so we'll go the other direction and then if you're you just turn everything perpendicular maybe water stacks up behind your garden and then you get blowouts and things are too soggy for so long so, okay. So then, you know, that's not quite right yet, but everything like in the key line pattern ends up being like say one to 4% kind of off grade. Um, and then suddenly in the places where I'm driving my side-by-side Kubota and leaving little ruts, just because of the nature of driving a heavy, the semi-heavy equipment, uh, across the field or your wheelbarrow or your big tractor. Well, suddenly those are like very gentle flow paths for water. And so like I'm instead of my tractor being like this agent of compaction and causing Mm. concentration of water, I'm actually can use the natural flow of the farm to, uh, to help, to help spread that water. But you sort of don't, you have to go to the water first or else to me, that's the key of it. In other places, there's maybe water is isn't um, isn't so destructive always, um, and there's just other key things like storing it. But uh, where I am, it's like it's a balance of both like keeping the water, but then also like really trying to minimize the erosion. I guess that's where I come at it first too. Is just uh, take out that erosive force of the water, and then after that, if I can hold on to some of it, um, we do. And so um, I've built a series of small ponds again. You work with what you've got and we're fairly small farm and so like we haven't built any big expansive wetlands but everywhere where the sort of the natural landscape allows us to and the law allows us to trying to hold hold water for as long as we can and just uh, get it back into the earth let our plants have it
1: so when you moved to your property did you do a bunch of earthworks before you even got animals like any livestock
0: Um, no, I, I made myself, so it's really easy to come into all these things like super gung ho. And, uh, and that's definitely kind of my personality and even like, and especially so my previous personality, I've really kind of used these last eight years to ground myself and mellow out a little bit. Um, but somebody I'm sure from the perm had got drilled into my, um, sort of don't just take a year to observe. You don't know the place, even if you think you know the place. I know more now. I don't necessarily think that's a 100% necessary, but I learned about that, you know, every time it's raining, just get out and walk around and um, you can really easily do things wrong. Um, You know, for instance, had I gone out and just like built swales everywhere I wanted to I probably would have done one on a sandy slope that I have on my I've one really sandy lens and it probably would be a freaking disaster and it's maybe not needed anyhow because there's good infiltration and the water's not really running along there. I've done some other soil building techniques there but um you know kind of had to get to know the place before that um and then like early on in the in that sort of session of learning I did do a few things. We built our first swale um, and I think it turned out all right. I would do some things again and I almost would like to sort of get in there maybe and change some things um, with an excavator here eventually sometime uh, just with respect to sort of how we travel through it. But uh, um, then I got in with, uh, I don't know if you've ever come across Zach Weiss in the permaculture world. He's sort of a water guru. Name sounds familiar. Uh, he worked under a, uh, permaculturalist, uh, Sepp Holzer, uh, anyhow, he's, uh, yeah, a water savant had a really excellent time. I luckily I was fortunate enough to work with him when he was like, I think his career was slow enough that I got a lot of time with him and he came and stayed with us. And Mm -hmm. I learned a lot with him sort of crawling over the land. And, uh, and when he was here, we just, we brought in a small excavator and dug test slices all over. So that's another nice thing to do to just like, to really get a sense. I think we dug 13 or 14 test slices like down to 12 feet deep just to get the soil profile and to know what we could, what you could do at any given place to really have a solid plan. And um, yeah, you never know till you're, till you're getting in there, especially some of these ag soils have been disturbed lots of times and, and what have you. I've got some places that we actually at 12 feet, we still can't get down deep enough to know what like the parent material is because it's kind of been silted in and dredged out those sorts of things. Sure, Right. Right. So, I guess that's to say I didn't, I didn't uh, I didn't get in there heavy with the earthworks right away. Um, Some things now I wish I, you know, I had done faster, but then we were right away in with animals. Like uh, we got here on May 1st and I think our first batch of chickens were, you know, here by the end of the month and uh, actually through word of mouth and like had a, uh, a milk cow and her calf and a, Steer that I didn't really want, but he came with the two pig with with the two cows and four pigs like within the before solstice. So within 50 days of being here on the farm, sort of uh, there's a little bit of horse infrastructure. So we were able to cobble together some fencing. And um, when I moved my moving truck out from Iowa, I filled it full of fencing materials, knowing that it was cheaper in the states to get started. So I came in with my charger and several big reels and posts and stuff, and so. Um, yeah we just hit the ground running and sort of like spaghetti at the wall see what sticks learn some things um which which i uh i'm totally an advocate for you know like some people this are like the two two schools of thought just like go at it or like start things and get really good at chickens and then the next year do take on turkeys or something um we didn't do chickens and turkeys together but i'm a fan of just like starting fires and then just keep try to keep <laughs> try to keep them under control and uh you know within reason i suppose but, right uh, like we just learned a lot and for instance like we've been here eight years we came into pasture pigs i was really interested in pasture pigs and we had up to um had a few sows going and you know, we're marketing 25 30 pigs a year and now i'm just ba- i'm down to just a couple i buy in some wieners from the local amish and use them for my own a few personal customers and my own meat and uh something i could love to try again and i've, I've learned lots from them and uh and they actually did a lot of good in the places that i work them like i don't lament having them there's a few rough places um i've I, you know I, I learned a lot from them i'd be happy to bring them on i could have more confidence of like starting a solid pasture pork enterprise in the next few years because of that knowledge with them. But um, like it sort of didn't work out and I probably lost money on it. So it's one of those things. Should I, but should I have not done a lot about it, be in love with pigs, know how to keep them fenced in. And if I ever really want to get into a a big pasture or pasture pork market, um, like feel pretty confident that I could put the capital investment into infrastructure buy my animals and be like going with solid knowledge of pigs. So, um, so those sorts of things, not everything sticks, but you learn a lot from all of it. Yeah. Um, And, uh, we had a dairy cow for many years and just like life was sort of getting too busy. Um, and she was hard to get pregnant. And so we sort of moved out of cows, but then, um, like I've got a new one ordered from the Amish that would pick up in September, you know,
1: Hey, nice
0: back into it. Like we very much, it, it was a, uh, you know, sort of trial by fire. Um, actually, our, our, I'll spare you the stories, but she came sort of wrangly and we had fun. Me, my first time ever milking a cow's first time ever being milked long after she should have been, been milked. Um, so, but now, you know, now I recognize it as like a critical part of sort of being resilient on the homestead and, having access to all the calories and stuff. Now I just buy Amish milk, Amish raw milk, which is still fairly cheap, but I want a cow back. That sort of thing.
1: So the cattle, like you, do you have cows now? You do have cows now, right?
0: I just butchered our last cow, but we're, so we're in this in between spot and then we're bringing back on in September. um, At least this Jersey. And then hopefully more. We're actually, so I swung into sheep. I have more sheep now um, and a little bit of a cattle interim. Um, but then hopefully in 2025, my neighbor's hay lease is up, and then we're gonna get back into cows big time again. So um that's one of the things we've had as many as as uh like three cow calf pairs on the farm and finishing, you know, three or four cows a year. Uh it's one of these interesting things with the water, a lot of the water works. Like my fields, now that I've got swales and terraces, things are so wet that like in my sort of immediate area, um, I've really found sheep to be sort of more amenable, um, immediately, but we're working on getting my neighbor's field transitioned over. It was actually, it was in row crops and then, uh, to get it transitioned over, over, he's put it into hay for five years and then we're going to be back onto it with beef. Um,
1: that's going to be the- awesome.
0: Yeah. And then I've got another neighbor that I do bring beef through. Um, my lower fields are are our, uh, heavy grassland, uh, our prairie grassland, And uh, so then we push his beef through here too as well, but right here, not on our farm for the moment.
1: So do you run, when you had the cattle and the sheep, did you run them together or were they separate and like rotationally graze them?
0: usually together i tried different things um i tried for a while like when i had a like if i'd have a dairy cow i'd get her into the pasture maybe 12 hours earlier and then i would let the sheep in um, and let them have it for a day and then have uh like a few steers or even a heifer calf like uh behind them sort of just like to clean up all the grass and to not necessarily be worried about putting the cat the first two batches of animals being lactating um but then i switch them and so like i don't uh, castrate my sheep and so here soon uh i'll have to split split the males and females apart and then i just run um run the males with run the cows and the and the ram lambs all together Um, and i never had too much never had any problem with that um actually what i do often uh, if they're together i'll end up doing um uh, i either run my sheep on poly net early in the year and then i go to just wire when they're a little bit bigger later in the year um but i've got a lot of the cow pigtails they just have a single strand and so uh oftentimes i'll i'll subdivide a paddock to where the cows only have part of that and the sheep can still get to a place where the cows can't get to
2: um
0: so i find maybe they do sometimes get a little little uh rambunctious and chase each other around or chase each other through the fence, that sort of thing. But uh, I think most of the times when I have problems with that, it's the, it's the fact that I have everything so dense. It's really, that's a learning process of like rotational grazing is everybody's like, Oh, high density rotational grazing. Well, if you only have even six cows and 20 sheep and you really have them like dense enough to be like high density, rotation, are pretty tight on each other and maybe not a lot of room to move and so then you end up opening them up so they're more comfortable with each other And uh, but maybe mm. don't have the density of grazing that I want out of it so it's that's where I've been trying to like play with get over it a couple times with a couple sets of animals or if they're better all at once or right it's so hard figuring out I mean that's why I just feel like getting things and trying it is like the best is, is all you can do and see what works like right now i've got i've just been pondering the grass was really wet early this year and then we didn't get any rain for a long time um, but the grass grew really well and uh, we had some hot pe- periods and so like the grass got way ahead of everything um, so i'm doing my pretty intensive rotational grazing with the sheep but then i have two rams um, that i've just i haven't been moving them as much and like there's a couple places where there's big vetch and clover patches next to them. So I'll just leave them in a paddock longer than I normally would and throw them stuff over the fence every day to kind of keep them going without a rotation. Well, then I pull them off of a place that, you know, they've been into, you know, way too long and like over the three days or whatever, you know, that of like getting their third bite kind of thing and damaging the pasture. I like how those pastures look great now because they really beat the crap out of the grass, but the clover's still fine. And so, you know, it's just, uh, it's always learning. Uh, okay i do
1: have a question uh you you mentioned sheep and clover i thought sheep could easily overgraze on clover and die is that right they they bloat easier or something like that Bloat is a
0: thing for sure we've never seen anything like that in ours so we run katadans which are generally known to just be pretty hardy and sort of out there and grazing and even have like a little bit of people say a little bit of goatish to them I don't see them eating more roughage necessarily, but they will sort of expand out. Um, So I think if you had them on lots of roughage and then you just like turn them out into a full pasture of clover and they just went crazy, you could probably run into a problem. If I've ever Mm -hmm. had to do that um, because of the fear of the clover, like I maybe would supplement them with a little bit of dry hay just so that they uh, can sort of self-select that. Um, and I haven't really had, I don't have that problem too much where my pastures are too clovery, but I've never seen anything like that. Um, I think it can happen. I think the dry is a good trick. And I always tried to do that if I was just like, um, easing them onto the pastures and sort of making sure it's always a balance too. And again, just why you just have to sort of do it, um, of like getting out there too early and beating up your pastures or holding the back when they're just, when it's green on the other side of the fence and they just want to break the fence down. Cause they're like, why the hell aren't you letting me have that grass on April 25th or whatever. And, um, yeah. I find I really follow, uh, um, see if I can come up with his name. Like the animal nutritionist that just talks about, uh, it will come to me. I'm terrible with names, but it'll come in a minute. Um, like animals ability to self-select. And so if you just give them lots of diversity, right, uh, that you really aren't going to get into to problems, even, uh, even with respect to like putting animals in the woods in places, um, which needs to be a balancing act for many reasons, but like they might have exposure to a fern that could be deadly, but if you're not leaving them there until that fern is like the last thing to eat and they're just hungry and they're like, fuck it, like the fern. Um, they're probably going to avoid it. Um, and I see that a lot with, uh, with my animals. And Fred Provenza is the gentleman.
1: Uh, oh, okay. He's a
0: yep. r- researcher out of Idaho. And, uh, I've seen him at several farm conferences and uh, re- really fascinating stuff. But basically just says, you know, these animals can figure it out on their own. And I see that like certain plants I'll give them and they'll like eat it for one day, like hawthorns. one. They'll just like gorge on it the first time I give it to them in the season. And then they won't really touch it again until later. And they just like want that one dose. Um, but it sort of tells me that, you know, there's probably something out there that they want occasionally. And then, so when it comes like, I'll save things like that for the winter and just expose it to them. And, you know, if things get harsh, throw out a variety of things and see what they might, they might want out of it. But, and then I think they, they avoid all the things like poison, bloat, and those things pretty well.
1: Do you have uh, any? I'd say, for lack of a better term, like formal, like training. Like, did you take a PDC or did you just train with uh, Zach? Was it Zach Weiss? Is that what Zach, you said?
0: Yep. Um, I wouldn't so much say I trained with him. He just, he came for a consult and then came back and did a project here. So I had two good stents with him, like right on my land and we can, I really could learn a lot from him. No. Um, but so I was, I kind of, I went through a, a undergraduate degree in ecology and wildlife and then I did a master's in sustainable agriculture and uh, like through that, through that training and that like uh, my master's, Um, I had several really interesting classes where we just got to travel, like all over and see all sorts of agriculture. Everything from big, uh, like you know, going through a big JBS uh, plant that's butchering like tons of pigs in a day, um, to like you know, Amish operations and all these things. So, like I'd really done some. I guess I'll say like a study in like getting a big snapshot of all these things in agriculture. Um, And then after my that sort of sort of formal academic work i went and worked with uh, a group in iowa called practical farmers of iowa and a uh, small nonprofit well, getting bigger uh all the time but um you know gave me lots of exposure to farmers and there was lots of learning opportunities there and then, then i sort of had a uh well, he was a coworker actually at, at pfi but we got to be good friends and I did several years of gardening with him on his place and he had had a market garden and he was really a mentor on how to do a lot of things and not necessarily permaculture, but, um, I started reading lots of that stuff, but again, not, uh, I never really studied it formally, but I studied ecology formally. And then you just read about permaculture and all sort of makes sense, sort of identifying patterns and processes on the land and, and, uh, bringing them into your planning.
1: Sure, yeah. I was just curious because it sounds like you have like this, like a pretty good like depth of knowledge on on these systems. So,
0: yeah, I, I I was able to dabble in lots of these things, sort of in different ways in my life. And even like when I in university, for instance, I took like you know a wetland and like pond planning course or whatever, and just uh, I was able. I had actually I had a really interesting. I won't go into it, but. I kind of like i went i dropped out of university when i was young and i came back and because of that like my whole catalog that i chose from was gone but they just said if you want to stay in your old in your old track or whatever just do what you want and uh so i got to take like all sorts of very interesting classes and it really mm-hmm. let me sort of like make this arc like i seriously i started like in all my wildlife classes and by the end i was taking like pond design and landscape architecture and i'm going to hit
1: like, you up for a pond <laughs> design then because i need one bad
0: good. it's uh yeah it's i mean i haven't honed all those things but it's uh it's definitely i've been exposed to them and and for sure it's uh fun to talk about and there's some great guys that are doing things to like to depict the pond teachings and stuff now like i'd love to even do like some more visit andrew mollison that does like the online permaculture courses like there's good stuff out there um yeah, I'm assuming I mean, that's
1: sure. Bill's son or something.
0: Don't trust me on names at all. That's fine. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, what would you say was the has been the biggest challenge in in farming that you faced?
0: Yeah. Um, I mean trying to make it all work really, you know, to, <laughs> just every piece of it is, is sort of bigger and more complicated than kind of you realize when you're first getting in. And even like I've been around farming and, and uh, work for farmers growing up and stuff. So I understand some of the things and the size of things, but you know, it's uh, like, I, I can just think back how many times I was shocked. Like, holy shit, that chick, that trailer's like, got a lot of chickens on it. Like once you get it loaded up at four in the morning, you're starting to do the math, like 300 times nine or whatever it might be, you know, and you sort of hit these things where you just like, as you're incrementally getting up there, it doesn't feel like anything. And then you're just like the scale right. of these things hits you or like, you know, the first I beat up one small pickup truck here. And then it's like, it's buying feed from the Amish, you know, and all of a sudden they drop like, Oh, we made this one a little heavy. It's, you know, 3,000 (laughs) pounds and they like drop it on the trailer and then you're off and going. And it's like those, those scale of things really start to hit you right when you, when you're like watching Justin Rhodes and you're like, I'm going to be a chicken farmer. It's like, better be able to hump some feed bags around. Right. And, and, uh, right. And loading, loading chicken crates at the end of the day, at the, you know, at night, going through the morning, going to the abattoir and stuff like those realities. Um, like freezer space hit me all the freaking time. It would never seem to, I'd, I'd get, get ahead in my meat business one year. And then the next year it'd be like, all right, I guess we have two cows and three pigs and chickens are all being butchered next month. And you're like, you know, I was like, it's seriously been the joke. Uh, we've sort of backed down, like I said, before, in this wave between the cows right now. Like the freezers are not as sort of as full. Um, and like, and it's kind of not, it's not, it's not the cows that are coming through here. Um, it's like, it's been the running joke for eight years. Like a successful end of the meat day is like the freezer closes, right? Where it's just like, fuck, get, make sure everything's safe. Like even at you you know, or if, and you're like, you're worried if the customers are if enough customers are going to come buy fresh chickens in order for the freezer to close um, or the multiple freezers to close. So just these realities that like, and it's funny because it's like, I just kept hitting these ceilings with like, moving stuff it's like the physical scale of things um you know the larger the sort of money gets uh like sort of the capital outlay for different things and um, whether that's you go from raising 60 chickens to like we're up to a couple thousand chickens um so like those cohorts are much bigger if you're raising 800 chickens in a cohort like you have a lot of feed on the line if like a raccoon was to come in there it's like a huge it's a much bigger loss than if you got your like 30 chickens in a chicken tractor and that sort of thing right and then Mm
2: -hmm.
0: stretching that into like putting hay into a cow for two seasons before and um it's like those realities of uh are i'd say sort of one of the the bigger lessons and i mean i they should seem obvious and it's all could pencil out but you don't really from the sort of homesteader scale of things, it's, uh, I don't think everybody's really prepared for that. And I wasn't necessarily, um, you know, but you work into it now I've got a, I went many years trying to decide which tractor to buy. And I don't use a tractor for a lot of things um, with respect to like most of its implements and had a tractor I could rent from cheap from a neighbor. So I never was pushed really for several years. And then we ended up with a track loader so now I can, I realize, like moving things, water materials. Yeah, like, that's what I do here, right? Like I don't turn a PTO; I move things, and so got now like the best equipment for sort of moving things. Because um, you realize, like, it's, you know, I'm like I move wire, I move buckets, I move, <laughs> I move things, right? And right. Those are sort of some of the limiting, limiting things. Um, you know, the scale and weight of water. That's another one. Like we're you know we're obviously working to put water resources on the ground, but there's been times like when I scale in cattle and I didn't realize what I was doing to my well. Like suddenly you know hot and dry, my second year here, my well went dry. Whenever oh like,
1: geez, there's
0: places around here that you can't pump the water out. But my re- I'm in a little lens here where it's actually pre- quite precarious. Like the well sucked, but then I've got springs tapping out springing out everywhere, right? And so it's like it's a balance of resources. It's not that I'm dry, but Um, you know, the spring shooting out in the middle of the forest, it's not a lot of good to you, right? You still, you're (laughs) driving, you're driving down to the guy with the pump and bring hauling back water. You're not going to your own woods or whatever it might be. It's like hitting those realities of like, okay, now I got to haul 8,000 pounds of water. (laughs) Like, how do you, how do you do it?
1: There's a lot of weight. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh,
0: on the flip side, go ahead. So those have been, those have been sort of the lessons. There's lots of parts of like trying to figure the economics out and those sorts of things too. But um, I sort of almost feel those are like ancillary, like ecology and physical reality are kind of trump the profit in mind. And then I'm maybe much to my wife's dismay, but that's like third on my list.
1: (laughs) Don't tell her that. Don't let her listen to this. (laughs)
0: She knows it's true. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: I was going to say on the flip side, what's been like? What's the best part about farming?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm like I'm pushed to to like think back to where we started about like there's a real need for systems change, and I think like homesteaders are in this really cool place where we're like playing with these systems that really need to be changed and. Made- maybe it's a technology where people are like on the edge, but I don't mean to be like self-important because it's certainly not me, but just in general, like we definitely need as a society to like rethink our relationship with the land. And that means like farming and our own personal relationship with the land and where non-farmers get their food. And so it's like, it's a very real place where we're like in this like really could be potentially like curiosity driven and important uh, place of innovation. And even if it's like, I don't think it's going to be me necessarily, but just like figuring out how these ecologies work and even like awakening ecologies and sort of engaging animals and all these things. So like, I think it's just really neat to be in the sphere and sort of working with these things. And, um, you know, I guess we've, kind of talked about a little part, a lot of the little parts, but like when it all comes together, you know, you've got like ponds and tree lines and you're sort of moving your animals between trees and trying to balance, you know, chasing the grass and waiting for it and hoping it rains and looking for where it's too wet. All these things you are just like, we really get to weave together, like basically a novel ecosystem that uh, I don't really think people have really done yet. Like, some sort of indigenous groups have done it. And I think there's like legacy European systems that people have done, but I don't think we've really like done it well as a society in North America. Like we've sort of came and had like blitzkrieg mentality and we've just kind of been like living off the fat of the land for many years. It was just like living off the fat of the land. And then there were obviously like cycles like the depression and depletion where it really caught up with us, but we actually still were like able to plow through that. Right. And it's like, a lot of modern agriculture is like sort of sure know, it's like going by sheer momentum of itself. And like, we don't know where the limits are, but we have this other, we have a need. And so just like playing with that as a homesteader is really freaking cool. And so like I feel really fortunate, just our balance. And even though it's like, it's, it's changing now financially for us and we're, um, you know, focusing on different things, but it's like, just uh yeah getting sort of this like ecological engine moving and 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 sort of working with it and and like being able to sit back now i'm trying to think of like as we go forward you know we would have come here eight years ago it's like how do we want to make our living like i'm gonna am i gonna be a chicken farmer am i gonna be a pork farmer and now like we've sort of had this had the time here and we've been able to like step back and sort of work with the place and Have these different things so we have knowledge going and i think the land sort of like knows that we're working with it and so now it's like we're getting a sense of like what's going to work here because this is what the land is going to help us work with too right it's not like right all self-imposed and um i'm not saying like perfectly tuned in and like channeling the land but you just i can also see what works and we can just sense um
1: because you're aware and looking for that feedback so then mm-hmm. you can see you can your your ears are tuned more so
0: yeah and it's to everything it's paint the paint whole environment paintbrush. it's like us here and then it's like also I, I say that and i want to just make sure i put into it's like you know we felt out the markets and those sorts of things and so we know like what what's going to go um yeah i, I add one thing this i just want to make sure that i brought in and maybe this is not the appropriate time but I think it's like a really interesting point to pass on to people. And it's been like important to us when I was working with Zach. Um, he sort of made the point that he, cause he's worked with lots of farmers and then lots of areas, third world and uh, Europe and Asia and, and here in North America. Um, and he always said like his, his sort of reflected one time and said like, he often finds that the people that are just growing food, like sometimes struggle and it's, it's a grind, but uh the people that sort of like find and get into and like are providing medicine to their community. That's like a, a link that really sort of is It's just important for the farm. Like it's profitable. Mm. It's powerful. It's got all these things. And so like, I can feel that working. And my wife's for instance, she's working on a, like a skincare line based on the tallow, uh, just of grass fed tallow because it's just, you know, it's medicine. Right. And so, right. Um, I don't know. I bring that up because it's like, I, th- I think it's powerful. Cause I mean, first off medicine has like so many different connotations. And I mean, I think he really means like, he knows people in Montana growing arnica, and that's like freaking better than growing carrots because there's a lot more money. In it, Can right? you repeat like, that last part? You, you cut something.
1: out just a little bit.
0: Oh, just to make the analogy, like it could be so simple as like somebody in Montana growing Arnica versus it's going to be a high dollar crop versus growing carrots, which is going to be a low dollar crop. So there's like, sure. even right there. But then also I feel like this idea of medicine, like now if we can like be taking our products like beef tallow, which maybe have been like thrown away before, and now it's like can be used as a skin product. I mean, we don't throw it away, but it's even really hard to like make sure you get it back from the abattoir and all those things. Um, you know, if it can nourish people, um, can be both value added and good for the farm. Uh, right.
1: Like let uh, your food be your medicine and your medicine be your food type thing.
0: Yeah. I think it comes back to that for sure. Um, and just so as you're view, of your farm products, is that right? Like it's really hard to just be a carrot farmer because carrots are cheap, but growing new, both nutrient dense foods and then just also, yeah, these sort of deeper medicines, I think is important.
1: I've got a, I've got a note in here about Taoism. Are you in, are you into Taoism? Is that?
0: Yeah. Taoism. I would say, I would say I wasn't, I was just brainstorming. You said, Hey, what are some other questions? And I was just yeah. throwing it out there. It's been something I've always really thought really dovetails nicely with, with sort of regenerative ag and stuff. I don't necessarily Sorry, are you
1: saying life. Taoism or Taoism?
0: I say Taoism. I think you could say either. People I, I do think, it with a I T. I thought Tao,
1: I thought they were different. I'm not. It's been a while since uh, world religions or whatever. No. Uh,
0: <laughs> so there's two things. So there's some people do it with the D. Some people people do it with a T. And there is like one formal sense which was like formalized as a religion. And I'm not really interested in that. I'm like the, mm. the Taoism I just sort of threw out there is more just like the fact that the universe is just like flowing around us. And there's so many things that people could do that could just, you know, you can, you can go with the flow of the stream or you can go against the flow. And I think, uh, especially when I was more tuned into sort of Facebook groups and things related to homesteading and regenerative ag, like, it's so easy to just beat your head against the stream and, uh, it's really hard on people and I see people just grinding themselves out. And I think this lifestyle is really a way to just like tap into the flow and take things easy. Like we're so blessed to be able to, like on the farm to access silence as long as you sit down and make time for it and sort of have the universe, you know, giving you signals and whatever. I, mean, I don't want to be like, it's not even woo woo. It's just like, whatever tapping into your own intuition having patience to wait you know there are so many things that just like um you want to rush into like and there's like a Taoist saying, like a modern Taoist saying it's like if you have a good idea like you need to go fishing absolutely the worst thing you should do is act on it like if you're on the homestead you're like oh sweet i just got a great idea for a chicken coop like do not go build it like go fishing put it out put it out of your mind or think about it let it ruminate hmm. and i like i've spent so much money and wasted so much money in the past like my garage is like an assortment of or my like barn shop of like baggies of projects that i'm just like i'm going to do and, like went and bought the shit and, like once i let it settle some things i never did it but i actually it's uh like i don't lament it it's just like what I lament is I spent the money on that thing that I obviously didn't need to spend the money on because somehow that problem either Got came up with another way, solution yeah. or yes. And or so, it wasn't uh, a
1: problem anymore magically.
0: Yeah. And there are so many things. Um, and then it also just takes, I don't know how much you want to go off on this or how much you were like shooting for with that question. But there's so many things that just like, I uh, you know it's real easy to like beat yourself up in farming or, and even like you have catastrophes and those sorts of things. And like, uh, so just to get a sense of Taoism, um, I'll just tell you like a little Taoist parable. And there's like a I'm trying to think of how it goes. And uh, I'm trying to think of how it starts, damn it.
1: <laughs> well, you think of it, I was just going to say. Yeah. Um, yeah, my the I was just curious how Taoism played into your your farming life. So like how the two like mesh together. And I'm I'm glad that we went there because yes. I was curious about that.
0: Yeah. So I mean I think that Dao- well, essentially Taoism to take a step back to is like people call it like there's Alan Watts, who was a big philosopher that talked about it. And he's like the water course way. And it's just like the way that the flow of things and the, sort of the flow of the universe is going along like the flow of water. And so then I think that matches nicely with ecological agriculture because I don't want to just be a chicken farmer and I don't really want to just be a grazer. But if I'm doing like those two things, there could be ways that they like are budding heads um, or there may be ways that they could like mesh together more like, um, what would be the term like centropically like right they just come together and work as a flow um and so like in the farm it's not only like trying to avoid the things that you can see like beating heads against each other um but then also trying to like identify these places where like hey there's a little there's a niche space where i like something could happen right there and um you know it might supply Like I needed a windbreak. And so like I have mulberry windbreak next to where I have the chickens. And so then like the chickens are getting all the mulberries and these things, right. Um, That's maybe not the greatest example, but just looking where, looking where you can have synergies versus things that are butting head or, you know, turbulence Um, like another Taoist principle. um, There was a term in Taoism called like Wu Wei, And it's sort of just like effortless action. Uh, But one thing, that sort of comes out of that is uh this idea that like um if nothing is done nothing is undone and so that can go to farming like like right now i have a very precarious goose situation the geese were driving me crazy freaking shoved them in a chicken tractor they go through their water i fill their water morning and night that's like sort of a hobby i'm trying to figure out where geese i'm bringing them on i just have two clutches well, that's very precarious because I, because I have, a, I've added myself water chore twice a day. Like if I don't do that water chore, they freaking die in there, right? Like um, yep. miss it for a day or two. Um, and you can think about that with anything. It can be a, a chicken watering system. Um, but if I can have, like I did this spring and this is, but I've just changed it. Um, otherwise like the geese, sort of live around a series of uh, like rain catchments off the barn. And so then they just have access to the water. And so, you know, if you build these water systems that need lots of input, water is very important. The first time you trip up, whether it's you get a flat tire on the way home from a big meat delivery, or I remember a guy I used to follow for years, like he got the flu really bad. Like, like all of his freaking ducks died. Right. Um, Cause it was like, he couldn't do chores for two or three days. It's like, Oof. if not, and you know, things just, things can't go in the heat without water. And, um, you know, and it's, so just this idea. So if you can, so let's not, let's not have watering chores. Let's do things where it's passive watering. I've tapped, nothing's on it right now, but I, after building two swales, I mentioned like different springs have popped up different places and I have a side hill seep. And so that I went and I put a perforated tile in the side hill seep. And then I ran a tee off of that and it goes into just a trough. Um, so there's like just a water animal water trough that like percolates out there eight or nine months a year. And like, I could have the geese around there and it's um, it would have been dry. Cause we didn't get rain for a while, but now we've had a couple nice rains. I bet you it's trickling again. Um, you know, there's things like that. Like if nothing is done, nothing is undone. And so like, how can you, how can you make sure that undone things don't cause you big catastrophes on the farm and, you know, true sure. ideas of redundance and all those right sort right things
1: as we wrap up here what would you tell people that want to get started just to get started
0: i think you can do it anywhere um you know if you have a property you can obviously start to look at how you can heal some of these cycles look at the water um it's going to be your biggest asset it's going to be your biggest like entry point for healing um but that same could be true if you're like, you know, in your HOA and how you can maybe have fight against regulations like, like a rain guard and sorts of things, right? Um, like start to bring these pieces of your life into wherever you are. Like I think all those things are like healing to us and give us ideas on how to better grow things. And so if you can do it there, um, you know, I know several people that have done really well with like tree nurseries and they're like, cause they're just in their small urban lots. But if you know you're going to be going somewhere, like you could start growing trees now, um, sell them, take them with you to your new property. Um, or even just, you know, take the experience with you to your new place. Right. Um, and then just like get out there, like sort of, we are fortunate enough to be able to you know jump right into the fire and have a place where we can make mistakes on our own. But if not, um, you know, just go find places and do the work with people. It's interesting. Like, I've had one, one kid down the street, well, one young man, he worked with me for several years and then sort of just no interest in his off doing his own thing. But he just came and did his hourly work. No problem. But, um, and he's a good guy. I like him now as a young adult, for sure. And a neighbor, but it's been like two others they' like the parents have been like, oh, my boy just wants to like, he wants to learn what you're doing. One people, they had, ter- they were did terrible grazing with like six cows and just like beat up their pastures forever. And the mom would always tell me like, come talk to my boy. I'm just like, if he comes to me once and wants to start talking, like we'll start. Right. But like, I'm not going to go looking for him and like offering him, Hey, come watch me do chores. Like he could show up on his own or within walking distance. And, uh, that's just to say, just like, get out there and get access. You know, I think, um,
1: yep. he knows where I'm at.
0: Yeah. And so I've had people come and help me plant trees and just chat. And, uh, we've always been amenable, um, A few people that i wish it would have worked out for them to stay longer and it didn't quite and someday maybe we'll get into that arrangement but uh you know there's like there's opportunities out there um i knew i was going to start grazing so like three or four years before i was really anywhere like i volunteered with a group and we moved goats around um uh like conservation areas where they were doing buckthorn mitigation and stuff and so it's like got some experience with the county conservation board moving goats um Mm you know, there's little opportunities like that. Yeah. Uh, So just get in there and get experience and see what you like. Um, Yeah. Start looking for ways. I mean, so many angles where you can, people should, it would be behoove them to think about resilience in their life and skills. I don't know. I don't know where it's. Yeah. Yeah. There's plenty
1: of ways that they can, yeah, they can, get into it. So,
0: just get outside. I'm so much we didn't even get into sort of like talking about more nature connection and those sorts of things, but it's uh yeah, like, just getting outside and become grounded, be moved, like I think this work is very important. Like I said we all have interesting opportunities. And so I think like there must be so many people out there if we could really get in touch with kind of their purpose and however they do that through whatever sort of religious vehicle they are moved by like so many people's purpose must be tied to being on the land because it's such an important question that's facing us right sure. now, and so just like tap into that, and then everybody's going to be moved different yeah. ways. Um, and there's lots we've thought about several people too, other local people to like. I wish could come and produce here. Like we've got 50 acres, and there's so much if we could have ten. I could have ten people could have you that's know business, businesses going off of here. So um, find other people. Yeah. I know that opens a whole other cans of worms trying to come up with whatever Joel Salatin's fiefdoms with people, but right. Like, right. Just get out there. Cause it, yeah. Start figuring out what's works for you and what inspires you.
1: Well, th- great. I, I really appreciate your time uh, and all that I've learned. So I've got a, I've got for the nature connection. I have a note here that says make time for silence. I really like oh, that one.
0: Yes. It's been so important for me.
1: It's actually uh, when you're out in nature, the silence is actually really loud. If you if you are ri- really really listening, you're like, "Man, it is so noisy out here."
0: Mm-hmm. So much going on.
1: Can you uh, tell people where they can find you at?
0: Um, I'm on Twitter at Pasturist. and uh, I didn't even really mention uh, our farm is called Three Ridges Ecological Farm, and so it's at uh, Three Ridges Farm. Um, we're basically at a point now where we we're all, we're sold out of everything. We're essentially like, you know, sort of switching to essentially a membership because it doesn't even feel f- fair saying that we like have that we sell to the public because we've kind of just, we've built such a customer base that we're sold out of most things. Um, if you're super local to us, please come us check us out. It's not that there's not a availability, but um, yeah, we're in Southwest Ontario where there's plenty of hungry eaters. So um, if you're around here, like. <laughs> get in touch people want this food bad for sure and uh
1: awesome you know. thank you very much drake i appreciate your time
0: thank you it's been enjoyable
1: i am matt derosier of Farm Hop life thanks for watching don't forget to subscribe and visit farmhoplife.com
2: inside of the city the people are crazy out of their minds they ain't got a clue we gone away for Montana Left family and friends All I got now is you We both got new jobs A host and a homestead Thinking this was the life All that there'd be After our first born You had to stay home That's when the work Got in the way for well I started farm half-life. Welcome to your farm to help and to wander. Me and the family, a truck and an RV, send us a message and